What, if any, concerns do you have about how mental health issues are addressed in our schools? Oh, I don't really think that people with anxiety and depression are taken as seriously. And even if they are taken seriously, what do we do with that information? You know, I can't as a, I can't as a teacher make sure that parents take their kids to the community mental health center or do all the things that they need to be doing in order to take care of those mental issues. Um, and because you can't prove that you have them, I mean, you come to school with a broken arm, I can see your broken arm. It's very clear that there's an issue, but mental health, it's not as clear, it's not as easy to see. So I think sometimes, um, again, number one, kids aren't taken as seriously as what they need to, and, and even if they are taken seriously, what do we do about it? There just isn't the mental health treatment available in schools that needs to be there. And that doesn't mean that we have a gazillion you know, psychologists there to listen. It just means that we have some sort of program that teaches kids some steps on how to cope with anxiety and depression and failure and rejection and not being able to let things go. And I don't really think that we take care of emotional health the same way that we take care of kids' physical health. They're typically not addressed. They're very overlooked. I've never heard of, I mean, there's counseling for students, but I don't know how far that goes. I typically just end up recommending you to an actual professional um, uh, and as far as the treatment of it goes, obviously none. There's no uh, special accommodations for people with mental illness that I've ever seen. I'm concerned that it's not addressed at all. And I think that um, it is an important issue and health issue that needs to be prioritized. Hi everybody, it's Kimberly Kay and Melissa Marie from Educated Sisters Fighting Education Ignorance. And we are back after a week off. Spring break is over. Children are back, teachers are back, we're back, everybody's back. But there's no spring. But there's no spring in much of the country. It's very true. Now you went on spring break someplace where they're actually is likely to be snow at this time of year. Yes, but we went to I the was state here. of Washington, but I did not yes. want to come home to snow in Michigan. No, and I was in New York City with snow. Uh, um, yeah, there was snow. Not, not, not for a long time, but there was snow. And I was just uh, telling you a little bit ago that I'm starting to simply defy nature. That's wrong. And I went out today in just a sweater and a scarf, and I told myself I was warming up because I'm just so tired of it. It's just wrong. It's wrong, but that's the way it goes. Um, so we're back. So you went to Washington State with the four boys, right? I did. The yes. four teenage boys. And um, uh, from the pictures that you posted, beautiful yeah, place that you went to. Absolutely amazing. Never have been, but will definitely encourage anyone I can to go. Would love to go back. It was wonderful. Really fun. That's terrific. Um, we had a staycation, and then um, my son went to Washington, D.C. to visit grandparents. Also had a good time and was, of course, lavished upon, um, which is grandparents' prerogative. Uh, and uh, now we're back. And I'm in the throes of um, backstaging the uh, middle school musical for the next two weeks, which is really exciting. And we are on the descent toward the end of a senior year of high school with lots mm -hmm. of sports and other 
commencement like activities so it is a busy busy time at the university and in our own personal lives and let's not forget that uh, many many schools are um, ramping up for state testing which is always a uh, um, an interesting time in a school and my son asked me today actually um, so do you care about the state testing and I said, well, it has its place, but I'm not a huge fan. I had to be honest. Maybe sometime we can uh, talk about that on one of our episodes. Yeah, it's a piece of data. It's a slice of information. Um, and, you know, we want to encourage our students to put their best effort forth. I know my, my sophomore son took the PSAT today, and um, I'm just hoping he, you know, he put some effort into it and did his best, and it's, like I said, a piece of information. So um, we always want that to show our, our kids best. Um, you know, there is some very recent news just released from the National Assessment of Education Progress that um, kind of test scores have plateaued across the United States with the most recent set of data that was collected since um, 2015, actually. They're comparing that to... Um, so that um, is um, kind of some bleak news that overall as a nation we're not really making a lot of progress and that our gap is actually getting wider um, for our students, um, you know, our subgroups of students. Um, so um, always have some work to do, especially around the achievement gap. There is that. And then as a parent who is not in the throes of, of the data, um, as an administrator or an educator, uh, you have to, I have parents, I talk to parents all the time about, you know, the testing and they're, they're ready with how they feel about it and what they think is important and what is not. And it's all, almost equally, almost always equally divided between the parents who are saying things like, I don't think the school prepares them enough. And parents who say, this is the dumbest thing on the planet. And it really doesn't reflect my child at all, so who cares? That's why we have to look at multiple points of evidence. When we're looking at individual children, when we're looking at schools, when we're looking at states, um, you just have to be really careful. And oftentimes one piece of data can get pretty warped um, and kind of a hyper-focus placed upon it. And we just have to be level-headed and think about it and what makes sense. Well, don't you think, is, am I wrong uh, at this time? in history is a lot of money tied to scores um state money well, federal money um you know i don't know about money um i know that accountability measures you know but whatever systems states have uh focus on those standardized tests quite a bit um and don't collect other information um so levels and measures of accountability can really ride on those test scores. Got it. Yeah, we should definitely do it, do an episode. However, um, when we come back, we're going to be speaking to uh, Will. We're going to be talking to Will. Um, Will is a former U of M athlete, University of Michigan athlete, who now makes his kind of life's mission uh, talking to not only students but um, educators and families and communities about um, the signs of uh, mental health, um, how to um, 
keep ourselves healthy, how to keep a, keep a watch over our peers um, for students and um, as the adults in students' lives, how to maintain, um, you know, uh, um, healthy dispositions, how students are feeling, um, which is, you know, based on our last episode, a really near and dear topic to our community with the loss of a student um, really recently, just in the last couple of weeks. So I'm really grateful to Will to step up um, on short notice and be able to help us kind of understand what students can do, what adults can do, what systems can be put in place in schools. Yeah, I'm really, really, really excited about this interview. Um, I, but it got me thinking, and I, I was trying to think back to uh, junior high and high school specifically in our hometown, and I do remember there being maybe one or two instances over those uh, seven to eight years where a student, a very specific student, might um, have shown signs of what might be called um, some mental health issues. But for the most part, I don't remember spending time on it in school. Now, you were 10 years behind me, but what do you remember? Um, I, I think the pendulum swings um, in schools as organizations. I think that there has been a more recent emphasis with ESSA, which is our federal guidance for schools, um, in the last couple of years as we've transitioned from No Child Left Behind to ESSA. And there is a definite social-emotional learning and assessment component that schools are expected to maintain, to build, and then to foster. And so I think there's definitely more attention being put on it, and I think it's very timely because I think that, um, you know, as a society, we have got some real needs as far as mental health goes, and so it having a place in schools is pretty relevant. Oh, I, I 100% agree, and I'm anxious to hear what Will has to, what he has to say about it. But obviously, if we have any hope of having any long-term um, results when it comes to um, recognizing and dealing with mental health issues as adults, it has to start. It has to start when we are all younger human beings. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, I think you'll hear him talk about how do students take care of themselves, but how do they take care of each other? And um, like I said, how do adults in, um, in students' lives take care of them and keep, you know, keep their eyes on them? Right. All right. Yay. When we come back, we will have that interview. Hey, Edumacated peeps, good news, Edumacated is now on iTunes, so go subscribe and listen to us on the go. And you can also subscribe to us on Stitcher. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at EdumacatedPod. We want to know what you're up to in the world of education. We want to know your personal stories about education. And we want to know what you want to hear about on our podcast, Edumacated, Sisters Fighting Education Ignorance. Fight the fight with us. So I am so excited and um, privileged to be here with Will, and I am going to start out and allow him to tell us a little bit um, about himself and his background and what brings him here as um, a person that has a real passion, interest, and expertise in uh, this area of supporting students and young people in the area of mental health. Well, first, thank you guys both for having me. Um, 
it's fantastic to be here and just to know that mental health is becoming such a priority for in so many different areas and lots of different sectors, I should mm-hmm. say. And, um, you know, part of my job is sort of getting to bring mental health to a lot of different uh, types of people, to different industries, whether it's, you know, veterans or school kids or athletes or professionals in the corporate world or rooms full of clinicians, but getting to help make mental health relatable widely and then getting to hear from you know each of these populations their own challenges and sort of put together this bigger picture of like, oh, like the same things that are challenges in one you know realm, one area, one one way of life, um, you know, in in something parallel, they show up, you know, in in other groups, in other you know, I would say this mental health, you know, mental health issues don't discriminate and we find them you know, in all walks of life and getting to interact with such diverse groups of people, I would say, and hear this common denominator that our brains don't function well enough at times. And then it can lead to real, you know, tragedy and pain. And when other parts of our bodies don't function well enough, Mm -hmm. right, we go and get them taken care Mm of. And so um, until we can we can look at and understand our mental health in the way that we do our physical health and have things and uh, programs in place and even just the way we think about it as a society to um, you know, preemptively mm-hmm. condition our minds, work on our mental health so that we can stand up to the, the rigors of, of life, mm-hmm. just like we would condition our bodies to stand up to mm-hmm. the rigors of you know, having to move around in a day or do anything athletic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, a little bit all over the place about uh, why I'm interested in this stuff. Um, but yeah, as a mental health outreach coordinator for the Depression Center, um, you know, we help uh, deliver mental health education and sort of bridge the gap between what amazing researchers have found out about mental health and a lot in the last, you know, five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and get that to society and to people so that we can actually use it because it's unfortunate, but most people don't understand what I consider the, the sort of elementary equivalent of mental health, which is like addition and subtraction for mental health, mm-hmm. is not common knowledge. And so there's a lot of work to be done. You, you mentioned a lot of key pieces there, that, you know, common denominator, doesn't discriminate. Um, you know, we do have to have a, a basic understanding and acknowledgement at the same level that we would if we were physically, if we were physically sick. Um, what was your path leading up to this real devotion to getting this, this information out and working at the Depression Center? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I didn't intend on going into mental health mm-hmm. work. In fact, I didn't know anything about it when I graduated high school, which was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, is uh, you know just about ten years ago this time of year when I had my initial experience with major depression and being a high achieving, pretty successful, you know, well liked kid. Like I had, I had it was such a one hundred to zero experience, and I didn't know what it was. So when all these classic symptoms and signs of depression were sort of piling on and becoming really obvious. I didn't know what this thing was, and so I thought it was like something that just like conditioning or hard uh, AP class or anything else that was difficult. I thought this was like this is a measure of toughness to like 
I got to put my head down and beat whatever this thing is that I would come to learn was a medical illness and an untreated medical illness in my case that was beginning to seep into every area of my life. And so long story short, in after hiding it and um, eventually breaking down at football, so playing football at, Michi- at the University of Michigan, um, I was led to help and successful treatment and came to not only um, understand what had happened to me, but go on to thrive but using the tools that I learned in therapy just to make my days bearable at first and then learned, wow, these have application on the field, in class, you know, even when I'm out at night in just social situations, like understanding my thoughts and emotions and being able to uh, have my brain work the way I want it to when I want it to was, was um, so empowering and, and such a sort of like a new lease on life. And then after, you know, just recovering and being grateful to be alive again and enjoying my days and being a busy student athlete, it dawned on me over the next couple of years at U of M and, and, and after that what was actually common was an experience like I had and that times in people's lives where their brains, because that's what we're talking about, their brains aren't functioning optimally. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that turns in, that gets low enough to be a disorder, that is a common thing. In fact, I would say it's part of human life because you don't expect any part of your body, right, to just work 100%, you know, your entire life. You just don't. like. Mm-hmm. It, but we do know that there are things we can do to give ourselves better chance, uh, you know, staying in shape and stretching and eating well mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but if something goes wrong, we generally know who to go to and, and how to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I learned was these experiences are common, but what was uncommon was the recovery or even the knowledge that they were going through something that was medical. The reason that, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, I can't stop drinking or I can't control my eating or I never eat or, um, you know, I just have endless negative morbid thoughts um you know you name it anything that that has to do with the brain right that um these issues were prevalent in society not being spoken about accurately talk about misinformation in Mm -hmm. in this podcast and so i came to realize and, and eventually got asked to tell my story um that there was a massive mental health issue in this country and in this world and as I got more and more into it, it was just like a, a page turner. Like mm-hmm. it all started to make sense, and they're just like there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. And so, at one point, I got asked to share my story. Um, a doctor in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, um, "You know, that was amazing. Nobody talks about this. You need to come with me and tell the NCAA what you said today." Mm-hmm. And um, from there, it just started rolling, and eventually there were cameras there, and then, uh, you know, ESPN got wind of it, and then I would get texts and stuff from my former teammates that would say, and this was just a year or two out of school, I had gone into finance in Chicago, mm-hmm. and again, having this awakening, this consciousness of like, holy cow, there's a lot of things more important than people's investments, I mean, you know, that it, you know, if our brains don't work, it doesn't matter if we have yeah. money or not, so anyway, um, it, it dawned on me that it needed to to uh, continue to tell this story and I would have teammates text me and say I had dude I had no mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. Um, or I was going through the same thing mm-hmm. or you know things that made me be like man like it just again 
as I've gotten more into this line of work professionally in mental health, the scope, right, it keeps expanding. And I've always been someone who wants to like put the puzzle together and figure it out. And mm -hmm. this is, to me, is the most fascinating and probably the most complex one you can have. But right now, you know, talk about a mental health talking point. I'm, I'm happy and I'm um, grateful to be in the process yeah. of, of doing that work sure. and be in the middle of it. And because there's so much progress to be made. So there are wins to be had every right. day. I, you know, since since this is a you know a podcast about education and what schools can do in school communities, and school and community bridging those things together can do. I know you talk a lot to um, students about um, knowing their knowing their own, you know how they how they feel internally, but then also strategies or things to identify suffering in others. And, and you know, like how do they check themselves internally? How do they check? For others who who might be at risk, um, so if you had to to take if you had to suggest to a school an action or a system that could have the biggest impact um, when um, trying to implement a system to improve mental health, what might that be? That's a great question. Um, so instead of giving you one, I'll highlight some of the things that sure. I've seen be successful and impressive, um, and that make me think. You know what? With four or five years of that accumulated on itself, like the middle school that gets those elementary school kids or the high school that gets those middle school kids is going to be in good shape. And part of getting to work at the University of Michigan Depression Center is, you know, you're sitting around with leading experts in the world who are figuring out how our brains work and why they work the way they do. And then treatments also um, that help them work better more often. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, some of the work, um, there's a program called called Trails at mm -hmm. U of M. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Koshman runs it, and it helps uh, deliver cognitive behavioral therapy skills, which is essentially just understanding your thoughts, like mm -hmm. being able to be aware of uh, your thoughts and then being able to analyze whether they're true or not. Mm -hmm. um, so things that can help with emotional regulation and decision-making, um, being delivered via the school staff, which is why it's special, but school staff trained and then maintained a relationship with Dr. Koshman's team, Dr. Elizabeth Koshman's team uh, at the Depression Center. So it's delivering essentially, um, you know, yeah, cognitive skills to elementary schoolers and the data that have come back are, are incredible that, mm -hmm. you know, the bullying scores lower, the anxiety scores lower, you know, year by year mm -hmm. as they go forward. Um, at some of the uh, upper levels, uh, middle school and high school, in fact, this program peer-to-peer -peer that I'm about to mention just began doing uh, middle school this year because it had been so successful in high school and because we realized it's needed in middle school. Like, mm -hmm. The middle schoolers are having similar, if not the same problems as high schoolers, and they're, sure. they're definitely facing uh, you know, suicides and depression and anxiety and eating this, I mean, you name it, right? All mm -hmm. these things that... They need it too. So that program um, is called Peer to Peer. Um, Stephanie Salazar helped create it. She's the director of outreach and mm -hmm. education at the Depression Center. And uh, Dr. Sagar Parikh helps oversee it. And that one is about utilizing the data, the knowledge that the research that says that any cohort, you to your peers, me to mine, um, not that we're not, but you know, students to each other, they listen to each other. You listen right. to your peers over any other cohorts, the mm -hmm. strongest influence. And so can we educate a group, a chunk of high school kids who are diverse in their makeup and who they hang out with and 
that care about mental health and then have them and help them go back throughout the year to their school and do a campaign, an awareness campaign um, to help educate their peers. Mm -hmm. And so that can look like a lot of things that can be, you know, signage in hallways. It can be an assembly. It can, there's pre-tests and post-tests that go with it, which are really just surveys to, sure. to look at if their knowledge about and, and attitudes towards mm -hmm. mental health, mental health mm -hmm. issues uh, improved and, and seeing these kids put so much effort and, and have so much success, um, you know, helping their peers understand mm -hmm. mental yeah. health and making it feel like a safe place or just knowing who to go talk to about, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. I don't, right. you know, I remember somebody talked about this or there's the kid wearing the peer to peer shirt. So if I, I guess if I had to make one general recommendation, it would be to look up and engage with, um, some of the people on the front lines mm -hmm. and doing, you know, doing this work. Because what I remind every administrator that I work with is nobody has this figured out. If they mm -hmm. did, there would be a model and a best practice and we would know how to, you know, right. we're in the process of figuring that out. And some mm -hmm. of the, the best and most impressive administrators to me are the ones who step one, acknowledge that. Yeah. And they say, and it's still worth it to go yeah. forward and to put our foot in and, you know, see, explore, do something because one life save is better than none. And who knows, we might event, who's to say that school A or B or C isn't the one that comes up with the model that is right. successful. So engage, um, engage with people on the front lines, you know, reach out to us at the depression center, um, you know, ask around your district, yeah. you know, this isn't competitive. This is right. rising tide lifts all boats. So you have many mentally healthier kids. You're going to have a mentally healthier school and population and you can go from there. I heard, you know, themes of like establishing culture, right? That 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 is welcoming and safe for kids to take that leap in seeking out that student, let's say, with a peer-to-peer -peer shirt. So I know a sense of belonging mm -hmm. is really important um, to establish a culture that has, you know, that where kids feel like they belong um, and feel safe taking the risk to say, I don't feel okay, or I'm, you know, what I'm thinking doesn't seem right. Can you help me process it? Yeah. But I, I'm also wondering, um, beyond the, the walls of the school, who else do you see has a responsibility to really do some of this hard work? You know, within a school, you just mentioned, but even outside of a school, as schools look to larger community bases. Yeah, um, it's a it's a great question. I mean, you, I think mental health, you know, education, uh, mental health awareness, skills, stigma reduction, these kind of things should be foundational in every walk of life. I mean, it just should be from the time. You know, you're learning how to add and subtract and, and how to write letters and read letters. Like, you should be learning about your emotions and that they do change. And sometimes they change really quickly and sometimes they they stay the same for a while. But over time, that they're, you know, they're dynamic and that mm -hmm. sometimes um, and about our thoughts and that yeah. they're just thoughts and that mm -hmm. you can choose, you know, how you react to each one and which yeah. ones you give credence to or give weight to and which ones you let go by because every human on the planet has thousands of untrue thoughts in a day. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, you know, whether like I was at an event, uh, a great event on campus and there's a panel and Debbie Stabenow was there and talking about pushing for change in Congress um, and that, you know, people need to like the, the individual, it's on everybody. It's on the individual to call and to not just say like, go call your representative, but call them and say, 
mental health matters. And if they hear that enough, because um, to say there's not enough resources, she said that's that's BS. I don't know what I can say on this podcast, but it, it's <laughs> that means that people don't say it's important enough because yeah. they the, the allotted money goes to what we say is important. So partly it's on the individual. Mm-hmm. Partly I think it's the community. Um, there's great community mental health resources that go underutilized. Um, because there's just a, a lack of engagement between that organization maybe and, you know, which, whichever populations, which is the people in the community that mm-hmm. could benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think, you know, I do think it starts in schools. Yeah. So beyond schools, we can talk about, you know, in general as a society, understanding mental health better. Yeah. And, you know, have, so that goes to TV, that goes to media. I think it's on corporations. And here's my thing is like, so I, I was, uh, I studied economics at Michigan and so being, thinking like an economist, I think about like, it's not only the right thing to do, right, which is less like an economist, but it's the smart thing to do to invest in a mentally healthier population because if you have employees who have, a, or any group, team, whatever, a sense of belonging, right, purpose, um, you know, able to understand adversity, recognize stress, uh, regulate emotion, you know, and then sort of think, see the thought, decide whether it's mm-hmm. worth it, and then act, yeah. you're going to have better outcomes. You're going to have a, a happier population. You're going to have a more engaged population. Yeah. Um, they're generally going to be able to perform better, and they're going to feel good about being able to perform right. well, right? And what organization, team, company wouldn't want a population like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I think the work in sports has shown, uh, made, made visible, uh, you know, the way that that those group dynamics work, yes. Um, but you are seeing companies now, even uh, you know Jim Hackett, who's a big mental health advocate and was the athletic director at Michigan when we launched Athletes Connected, which is our mental health program for student athletes. He's now the CEO at Ford, and guess what? He said, "I want a mentally healthier employee population." And people said, "Why?" I said, "Why wouldn't you?" Yeah. You know, I want. That's like saying I want a higher functioning. Right population and one that can sort of manage their lows better and enjoy their highs more and sustain them. So uh, I would say it's on all of us, but the fact that it's starting in schools is so critical Mm -hmm. and it does give me a lot of, a lot of hope for the Mm -hmm. future. We, you know, part of the purpose of, we hope the purpose of our podcast is to kind of create some relevancy and some reality for the listeners so that they can think about how is this a collective responsibility, right? And, and in particular, how do we use that knowledge to try to close the gap? Because we have a, you know, a severe gap in, in some of our marginalized populations. And so although, as you said, you know, mental illness doesn't discriminate, um, and we acknowledge that, what do you think the biggest challenge for those underserved populations of students who are seeking support might be? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the biggest challenge for the whole population and even more so for the underserved, underprivileged population is misinformation or lack of information, mm-hmm. right, which is then filled in with misinformation um, about mental health, about the way emotions work, about what it means about you in terms of being strong or weak or whatever if you feel a certain way about something. Um, and then you know, not having access to uh, the entire spectrum. So, you know, treatment for when you're actually sick and you need it 
for primary prevention for everybody because it's good to like it's good to go for walks and it's good to move your body around and have your cells gain those you know realize those benefits. Um, it's good to condition your mind to you know meditate for a little while or do some yoga or just go on airplane mode and put that favorite song on and get lost in it. But to uh, you know to, to treat your brain well and and why would you choose to do any of those things if nobody ever taught you about it if you were told that people who do that are soft or weak. Um, if nobody that you look up to, you you know you don't see anybody doing it like that. So you know when I see in general this massive lack of education about mental health, um, it's not surprising as to why. It gives me a sense of what a, a great amount of work there is to do. Um, but then on the flip side, you see people like a LeBron James, you know meditating before a game and the media asks him what are you what are you doing there he said i was meditating you know a mm -hmm. uh, brandon marshall just being so outspoken um you know not even about proactive meditation but about his own treatment and his own condition and so normalizing these things so it's i think it's information it's education it's it's having people see um and come to understand mental health and the brain for what it really is the way that we understand and it seems intuitive how like our physical body works or if you get strep throat, like where to go and what to do, mm -hmm. right? Well, if you don't like the content of the thoughts in your head or the way that you feel for more than a week, I would say, definitely more than two weeks, um, that where do you go and what do you do about that? Because that's not a you problem. That's not an indictment of you. You know, like I, I'd say like, okay, if your tooth hurt really bad or your friend's tooth hurt really bad, right? And then a week later they came back and they're holding their face and like can barely talk. And then in two weeks, you know, swollen, they can't, they can't speak and they're complaining of this pain. Like you're not going to probably fill their cavity for them. Right. But you're probably going to say like, you should go to the dentist and you might even help them, help them get there. Right. right. But they're, they wouldn't think of themselves as a bad person, nor would you for that they had a, a problem with their tooth or mm -hmm. their knee or cancer or whatever. Right. right. And so when it's our brain, why do we think, in fact, we should expect there to be problems. Think about how rigorous life is. And now, how crazy and overstimulated the brain is with all the push notifications and emails and all the how many more times in a day your brain is turned on and that stress response is turned on, period, than it ever has been. We should expect there are times and a generation maybe of people who have issues with the, brain, the way their brain functions without having interventions and things that help them work better, right? Like... Mm -hmm. And so I think being open to uh, to new information, to understanding, mm -hmm. um, to reduce stigma, to open to that we don't have it figured out. Right. And that by admitting that, it almost allows us the freedom to keep trying and poking around and mm -hmm. exploring. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, on an individual level, really making it the issue of our generation and you make one more person care about it or you help one more person mm -hmm. understand and so that they do care. Maybe they then understand their sibling's behavior or their partner's behavior better and mm -hmm. um, the ripple effect with mental health is, mm -hmm. is enormous. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think you know the, the marginal human who can understand it, be more mentally healthy, be more aware of their thoughts, of their emotions and how to regulate mm -hmm. them, um, that one person might be the only person in a room who is equipped to deal with a crisis and then help save a life. Right. And then everybody in that room is going to think, God, I bet I don't, I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that. You know, I need to learn this mm -hmm. and the ripple effect uh, helps spread. So, 
Yeah. You know, in this very current time of school safety, and um, you know, it's a, it's a very prevalent issue and topic that is has generated a lot of attention and. I tried to talk to you know my students who want to be school leaders or, or my own children and just people that I have this engage in this conversation with that it's that that part of school safety is um, really establishing those support systems for, um, for for mental health as well as any other safety measures that we have and so I'm, I'm grateful to hear you talk about things like you know normalizing the fact that our brains aren't going to function at 100% all the time. And, um, you know, learning strategies to recognize that ourselves, but then also learning how to be that person that can support others, like the person with the toothache, right? Mm -hmm. What is, is there anything, any other essential messages that you typically provide for your audiences that you would want our listeners to make sure that they get a chance to hear from you? The most important one, I would say, is so I um, I usually do get asked about suicide or if I ever uh, wanted to, to take my life or if I had a plan, mm -hmm. and I always want to touch on it. I wish I didn't have to, but until it stops happening, it's something we need to talk about. And so to the listener out there who might be experiencing those thoughts or um, somebody who is close to somebody who is really struggling first, I want to say that. Uh, you will get better. I promise you, you will get better. And the way that you feel is not permanent. I also promise you that you most likely do not believe me about that. And that is in part because of what you're going through and the sure. way that your brain is working. And I was there. Um, specifically to the question, I say that uh, while I didn't per se have a plan or like want to die, I did get to a point in my days where the, um, the rumination and all the symptoms adding up I wasn't sleeping. Days felt like a month long. Um, they were so painful and unbearable that I I literally could not imagine living 50 more years, let alone like two more years like mm -hmm. that. And so in that way, I came to understand what it feels like to not want to live anymore. And that's such a scary place to be. Um, but you are not alone when you're there. You That is something that has happened to many people. And there is help, just like there is recourse for so many other things when we need help. Um, we rely on each other, and then we help get them to the people who know the most about whatever it is that we need help with. Mm -hmm. And um, in mental health, you know, that's friends and relatives and mentors and teachers helping people get to doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists, social workers. I mean, people who deal with this stuff on a regular basis. So know that you're not alone. Know that you don't have to be sick to get better, to work on your mental health. You don't have to wait until there's a disorder or distress or a crisis um, to just give yourself credit for, hey, I went on airplane mode for five minutes today and I just listened to myself breathe. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I journaled today. Or I was there for somebody. I just decided to put my own stuff aside and just look out for how can I make a difference for somebody mm -hmm. and give yourself credit for that and know that those things add up Mm -hmm. um, you know, as, as part of your well-being and your constitution. So um, I would say those are, the, those are the two things I want to share. Such strong and promising messages that you share today and that just you exude. And oh, it's, it, I you. wish the listeners could see you because <laughs> your whole persona lights up because it's something that I can tell you 
absolutely are committed to, and it's we are absolutely so fortunate to be able to share your messages with a broader audience. And um, I hope we gain a lot of listeners through this, and that you can share it with others as a another testament to your work. So thank you. Well, thank you. I feel lucky to be invited on here and to discuss with you and to represent the Depression Center and to the and, and really that mental health is a issue at the forefront that people care about. Mm -hmm. And I hope to be back and we can look back and, you know, look how much progress, progress. we've made, yeah. you know, so I wish you guys the best and I hope our paths cross many times. Thank you. And for our listeners, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we get a chance to ask Will to pass along to us resources that we can post on the website that they can use as um, an extension of this conversation and um, seek those, you know, resources that, some of those resources that you mentioned or others. So Absolutely. We'll get those linked up. And Thank if you, you are just wanting to go, uh, you bookmark the page depressioncenter.org, or you can just Google the University of Michigan Depression Center great website with all sorts of resources about, uh, you know, clinicians, just general resources about sleep and mental health, exercise and mental health, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, I mean, you name it. So uh, a good go-to to have, and then from there it can take you into uh, a whole abundance of mental health resources. Well, I, we wish you the very best in your journey because we can tell this is going to be a lifelong commitment for you, and no um, we all benefit from it. Thank you. Thank you so much. In a world with too few jokes and too few laughs, to the rescue comes Papa Ron. Where do snowmen keep their money? <laughs> That's another one in the can, as they say. Thank you again for joining us at Educated Sisters Fighting Education Ignorance. Mimi and I are so grateful for your patronage. We also want to give a big shout out to our student interns, Noah Miller and Dave Dumont. We couldn't do this show without them. Follow us on Twitter at Educated Pod and also on Instagram at Educated Pod. We really, really hope to see you for our next program. <laughs>